Welcome to ASCP's podcast, Inside the Lab, where we discuss anything and everything that concerns today's laboratory professionals and pathologists. My name is Dr. Loti Mulder. I'm the Director of Leadership and Empowerment at ASCP, and I'm one of your hosts. Hi, my name is Pat Tanabe. I'm the Executive Director of the Board of Certification and a Vice President at ASCP. Today, I'm a guest host for this episode. We're going to talk about certification, and we've got some great guests lined up. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Hi, my name is Kathleen Finnegan. Um, I was a program director of a clinical laboratory sciences program in Stony Brook, New York. I am now retired, but I sit on two very active committees, the phlebotomy committee and the MLA or the medical lab assistant. Hello, I am happy to be participating in this podcast with my colleagues. I am Karen Brown, adjunct professor in the medical laboratory sciences division. Department of Pathology at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. I am a former member and chair of the Board of Certifications Board of Governors, and I am currently serving on the Board of Certifications Research and Development Committee. Hello, my name is Walter Oliveira, and I am a proud medical laboratory scientist and manager of medical laboratories at the University of Virginia Health System in Charlottesville, Virginia. I currently serve on the board of directors for ASCP and work with the board of certification as a past chair of the board of governors and current chair of the medical laboratory assistant certification and a member of the flow cytometry uh, specialty exam. Thank you all for joining us today on our podcast, The Making of a BOC Exam. Yes, thank you everyone for joining us today. Uh, CME and CMLE will be available for listening to this podcast in the ACP store. The American Society for Clinical Pathology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. ACP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity. Before we talk about the specifics on the making of a BOC exam, let's talk a little bit about why it's important to become certified. Well, to me, certification affirms that an individual demonstrates the knowledge and skills to perform the essential tasks in the medical laboratory and is essentially a master of the body of knowledge. So the entire certification process ensures that standards met are necessary for the safe and ethical practice of the profession. I believe that what we do in the laboratory and in pathology is we heal patients and you want people to know what they're doing, to have a foundation of excellence and quality. And that's why certification matters. I agree with both Karen and Walter. Uh, Basically, as an educator, we want our students to be the best. And for me, certification to them is quality, that they know that they have been trained to perform their job properly and that they are very well suited for their job in, in the laboratory. And there certainly are a number of benefits to being certified. It not only demonstrates the commitment to the profession and to quality patient care, as we mentioned, but it can also open up better job prospects, uh, potential for higher salaries, professional respect, uh, allows the individual to gain some confidence in what they're doing, and even to develop long-term professional goals and to really uh, remain current in the field. Also, to add to that recognition, okay, recognition of their education and their able ability to perform uh, laboratory testing properly. What we like to say is that certification is both a launching pad to a career, a fulfilling and rewarding career, and it's also a great landing place because the laboratory is a wonderful place to work, and it's rewarding to know that you are part of a team that is helping to heal patients. So it launches your career, and it's a great landing spot. In many cases, in states where there are licensure for our profession, Uh, Certification through us will allow you to be licensed in that state, in the state of New York. Currently, we are the only recognized uh, licensure exam. So if you want to get licensed in New York, you have to take 
you're taking a licensure exam, but through us, or, you know, you have certification from us, they will accept that for licensure if you meet their other criteria. As well as many institutions in Illinois, especially, you won't be hired unless you are certified and they may specify certification through ASCP Board of Certification. As Pat said, in New York, we are a licensed profession. And yes, the ASCP, the exam, the students need to pass that. That in turn gets their license application open and then they will be licensed through the state of New York. It also helps for their preferred in New York. Certification has always been preferred, even before licensure came into place. So what group within the Board of Certification oversees exam preparation? Well, really at the heart of all the BOC exams are the examination committees and qualification work groups. And there are exam committees for all the areas in which the Board of Certification offers credentialing. So I think there are 14 exam committees in all. And each committee has a very diverse membership, and it's organized around a number of different professions within the laboratory. So it's going to include technicians and technologists and physicians. Well, also, just to add what Karen said, also is that, you know, we do depend upon the ASCP staff. They are very beneficial in critiquing and organizing our thoughts and getting our meetings together. And as said, the examination uh, committees, there are several of us, and it is different. They're built up with different expertise so that we are across the board that we try to include and not exclude uh, everyone that's practicing. Partnership between the board of certification staff that Pat Tanabe oversees, a phenomenal group of individuals who work behind the scenes to make the certification exams the gold standard and the success that they are, but it's also a cadre of volunteers who uh, bring passion and energy and a commitment to the profession and the patient that we want to see this benefit our patients and we want to see people in meaningful careers. So there's a great partnership between staff and volunteers who make up the certification exam committees. Well, Walter and, and Kathy are spot on in the efforts of staff and the, and the volunteers. And certainly the volunteers on the exam committees are, as, as Walter mentioned, extremely dedicated. And each committee has maybe six to eight people. And, you know, they are dedicated to laboratory professions and to the whole process. And they really believe in credentialing and the whole credentialing and certification process. ASCP has a tagline that says stronger together. And when we look at the examination committees, we like to have people across a broad spectrum of experiences to help with the exam committee. So we would have individuals like Karen and Kathy who have been program directors and teach our students. And we want managers in the laboratory or supervisors that oversee these individuals once they are in practice. And we like to have people who actually fulfill that role, whether it be a medical laboratory technician or phlebotomist or medical lab scientist, the different certification exams we have. We, we want someone who is that certification and is currently practicing as that individual in whatever clinic healthcare setting. And then we like to have, whether it be a pathologist, director, because they bring perspective and understanding in the art and science of writing exam questions. So our exam committee of the volunteers really do cut across a broad list of people who are involved in healing patients. Just to add to Walter, we also on this committee, we have a chair and a vice chair that are kind of the directors. And we also have a board liaison that kind of brings back if there are things that need to be discussed or questioned and vice versa. If anything had occurred on the board meetings that the, the committees need to know. And just even to expand that it is a makeup of educators and practitioners so that we know that our questions are current. And I think that's the most important that, you know, we want to tag on to questions that are practice and not just book learning, because that's what's really, these are students that are going to go on 
to be, their goal was to be in their career is working as a, a uh, medical laboratory scientist. And the committee also consists of supervisors who bring in that perspective of, of management as well as uh, uh, technicians and technologists who are practitioners. Everyone did a wonderful job on saying who's on the committee. There's one more piece of this that the wide variety of people that work in the laboratory are represented, as well as we do look for geographic distribution because it does make a difference whether you're practicing on the West Coast or East Coast. Um, it really is a very different place, and especially if it's an academic center or if it is a small rural community hospital. And we try to have representation from all over because the practice changes dependent on the type of institution you're in and also the geographic uh, location. So you all talked a little bit about uh, some of the duties and functions of the exam committee, but I just wanted to ask that as a follow-up question and see if there's anything that you want to add. So what the question is, what are the specific functions and duties of each exam committee? The main duty basically is to maintain the, the item banks or the question banks, okay? We have banks of questions that have been written. Uh, we use these questions to formulate the exam. They are looked at statistically. They are looked at how they perform. They look at uh, other current. There are many, many areas that we look at to make sure that the question is fair, it's reliable. You know, we want to make sure that this these questions are built for entry level students that are taking the exam. Um, we look at, you know, the minimally competence of education that they should be able to pass this exam. We develop new item bank questions. Uh, I know that we have all volunteers write questions, and then the committee itself looks at the question, and I have to say that's where the partnership comes in, mainly because as educators, we're focused on one thing, but as a practitioner, they're focused on something else. We want to make sure that there is only one correct answer and not two. Uh, we reference all our questions to make sure that they are referenced for to be the right answer. Um, I'm trying to think of other things. We do something called a practice analysis, which I know was, uh, you know, we will talk about a little later. We also do something called a standard setting. We can get into what all those are. Anybody else want to add? And I think the committee members serve as ambassadors for the profession, for that certification to speak to individuals who are interested in taking the exam or to help clarify concerns or questions to let them uh, know what is available and how this certification or licensure can really benefit someone. But Kathy hit the nail on the head with the fact that the meat of what we do is to keep a quality exam that is current. And that takes a lot of time to write and review questions, to reference them, and to make sure that it is standard of practice. So it's always changing and we're, and that's a, it's a big lift, but it's something the volunteers really enjoy doing. And beyond all of the duties that are associated with actually writing and maintaining the exam questions, the committees also review and edit documents like the eligibility routes for each uh, certification exam. They also look at the content outlines and make sure that those are up to date and revised as necessary. And they are involved in, in just all kinds of processes beyond that as well that are you know, some of them may seem kind of mundane, but they're very important to the whole and entire process of putting this exam together. We also add, you know, look at the reading list to make sure that the textbooks are current, okay, and not something that's old. And, and especially with phlebotomy, the practice, the standards changed in 2017. So we want to make sure that those uh, are adhered to. Let's move to the exams themselves. Can we talk more specifically on how you do develop these questions and how are they maintained? That's a great question, Pat, when we think about exam questions. Uh, some of them come from practical experience. So as the educators are teaching and getting feedback from clinical sites, as laboratory supervisors or managers are seeing changes in the profession, uh, new diseases, new test 
methodologies, discontinuation of old methods. We get lots of information from the people who are currently in the field, the educators and the management supervisor teams to help us know where we need to add questions. And I think for us, the big reference is the content outline. This is a document that the exam committee spend quite a bit of time on to create what is an entry level medical laboratory scientist or a phlebotomist. What do they need to know entry level? So we create a content outline that is referenced to textbooks and documents that we then look at and say, where are we needing questions? So if it's a phlebotomy certification exam and we want to write questions about communication, phlebotomy communication with the patient, can we write a question? Do we need something in that area? So we use the content outline that we create based on the feedback from a practice analysis and our experts to look where we might have holes and questions and write questions that we can reference and then talk about them, bounce them off each other to make sure that they are good questions and see if that might be one that we put as an experimental on the certification exam. There are experimental questions on the exam. Does anybody want to say a little bit about that? Tag on that? First, I was even going to just talk about the anatomy of the questions, how we look at and develop the questions. We have a stem and we try to keep it concise. We don't want to give glaring language and any hints or any cluing. And then we have four distractors with only one correct. The other distractors are close, but they are not the best answer. In developing those questions, you know, we have a knowledge question or recall. We have a comprehension or problem solving. Uh, we have application and analysis. So those are our levels, level one, level two, level three. Statistically, we look at these questions to see how they function. We see how many people answer them. We look at the ability of the candidate. We look at how, if it was a difficult question or a easier question. And that leads into our experimental questions. All the questions that we develop are not put on the exam without being looked at first. They are called experimental. We want to see how they perform. Do they perform well? Are there two answers? And sometimes, you know, we're in your mind, we're thinking, well, this is the only answer, but in some place else, it may be correct answer. And we have found several times that we talk about this and discuss if there are more than one answer. After these experimental questions are looked at, they are not part of the exam. They do not challenge the students as far as their pass or fail. We look at it statistically and decide, is it a good question? And can we put it on the next exam? Well, it might be uh, worthwhile mentioning, too, because many of the listeners might be aware that the exams, at least most board of certification exams are 100 question exams. But actually, there is this very large database of questions. And so, you know, there are hundreds of items in the databases. And therefore, the number of different 100 question exams that can be created is just going to be endless. And so the exam committees are always having to add to that database. And so they are testing or field testing with experimental items all the time. And as Kathy um, stated, it's a very rigorous process to go through and examine each question as to its um, clarity and accuracy and how it's structured. Is it structured uh, appropriately or correctly? So it's a very detailed and uh, long process. I want to ask you, all, all of you have been on exam committees, and Kathy very nicely talked about the different kind of knowledge base or skill base to answer a question. For the most part, I want you to kind of talk about whether our questions are tend to be more recall or what type of questions do we really like to ask on our exam? The difficulty of the questions is more comprehension to understand the concept and then be able to apply the concept. That makes a better question. Uh, you just don't want, well, as I call it, regurgitation, because that really isn't somebody's knowledge. They can memorize these pieces of information, but you need to take those pieces of information and be able to apply them so that our questions are usually more level two and three questions. 
to get at the minimally level competent person to understand more than just book learning, okay? Because that's not, book learning is not something that's going to really help you in your job to perform well. It's good to know, but you want to be able to take that book learning and to be able to apply it, to recognize it, to see if this is correct or not correct and what your next step would be. As we look at individuals that are taking the certification exams, we know that they're oftentimes going to work in teams, yet they still have to function independently. So we want questions that can represent real life scenarios that they might come in contact with. You've got a short sample. What's the priority? What's the storage condition to keep this sample intact for analysis if it's delayed? So we want them to think about what the question says to understand what might impact their decision. So Kathy's right where we want them to think. It's not a memorization and regurgitation. It really is that application analysis, interpretation of some data or information that drives a decision. We hope it's the right decision. Well, and as, as Walter just mentioned, so having the questions themselves will have data sets or will be case studies. And there also will be images that are included. And so the the committees are responsible for providing all of that data and images as well for the exam items to ensure that they are reaching the taxonomy level that the committee wants. And all of you talked a little bit about testing new questions. Could you talk a little bit more about how that is conducted and who is testing the questions and how do you get information about them? Well, the experimental questions are a question, okay? We write new questions every time we meet face-to-face or now it's been virtual or our our conference calls. It's not a, you know, a one-shot deal. We we meet throughout the year and basically we have what we call homework, all right? And we're told what areas, as Walter alluded to, that we have a content, a outline of what is on the test. And we want to make sure that we have questions that meet our content outline. Because I think it's discouraging, particularly when I hear from my students that, well, I studied all this and it's not on the test. So we wanna make sure that we have questions developed for each of the content areas. So a committee member will develop a question. We will you know, develop a STEM, we will develop the answers. And then the, the, the group, as I said, it's a partnership, will look at it and kind of fix it for English, okay, for, how it's worded, get rid of excess words, make sure that all the questions, all the answers are the same length so that something doesn't just flare out. And then we put this on the exam. As I said, it's not part of their 100 questions. It's over and beyond. And they don't really know if they're experimental questions or not. They just answer it. So when those questions come back and we look at the amount of people who saw the question, because that's important too. You have five people who saw the question and, you know, four of them got it wrong, that's really not a good value for us to say it's a bad question. So we want to look at how many people saw the question. So say two or 300 people saw the question, and one of the distractors was not being looked at, we may look at that, and we will say, all right, we need a new distractor. We look at it statistically, okay, and that's really involving it for the years of being on the committees, I finally got it, of how important that we look at the statistical analysis of these questions. So we will look at it for difficulty. We will look at it for the ability of the um, candidate who's taking the question. Are they high uh, level or are they low level? And we will also look at um, things that we call flag. If something gets flagged, that's a question we will look at also to review it and see why is it not performing the way it is. We've also seen questions that were good performers, and now they're not good performers. So why aren't they good performers? Are they because the practice has changed? Is it not being done anymore? And those get to things that we as committee members do beyond just making up questions. That includes a practice analysis, that includes something called a standard setting. So those are things that are built into our duties as far as being a committee member. The Board of Certification doesn't work in a vacuum. So there are agencies like the National Accrediting Agency for Clinical Laboratory Science Programs, the Clinical Laboratory Educators Conference, where we are in contact with 
groups that have a vested interest in the success of laboratories and the programs that are represented by the exams. So the feedback we get and then the practice analysis that is something that's done based on our ANSI accreditation gives us an idea of changes in the field. So we know when a test has become obsolete and no one, or at least a majority of the people are no longer performing this test, let's not test a student on that question if it's not applicable. But then something like COVID-19, this is a new disease process. None of our exams questions have been on COVID because we're just now writing questions to try and say, can we get to that body of knowledge that will be important for someone who might need to test it? So we're constantly with our finger on the pulse, trying to understand where we're headed, what's in favor and what's out of favor. And I think when Pat mentioned a geographic representation for committee members, that's important because different areas of the country may or may not uh, adopt or discontinue a test that is currently in practice or a small hospital setting operates different from an academic. So by having a dialogue with the committee and looking at external resources like NACLs and CLEC and the practice analysis, we know where we need to be focusing our attention for writing questions and updating the exams. Well, Walter and Kathy made both made really good comments. And Walter, that's really good to emphasize the collaboration with other organizations and working with them and keeping a pulse on what's going on in the field. And then Kathy talked about all of the information that the committees have to look at. And I'll I'll just follow up by saying that some of that information, and this is part of the beauty, I think, of the ASCPBOC exam, is the amount of data that comes through on all the the test items or all the questions. And so there are statistics. And, and, you know, I'm not a big statistics person, but but there is so much data that can be generated from the exam questions. And that is the information that committee members really pour over and look at. And the staff at the uh, BOC is so great at helping guide the committees and looking at what is really important in the statistics. And of course, when you're on exam committees over time, as Kathy said, you do finally figure out what some of the uh, statistics do mean or should mean. I just wanted to emphasize how important it is, all of the, the data that helps drive decisions from. So the data is coming from organizations, as Walter mentioned, but then within the BOC, the exams themselves generate all kinds of data and statistics that are evaluated. I think also the other thing, you know, you talked about statistics and um, one of the other duties of the exam committees is you look at how the examinees do after a year to see are they doing well on the exam, especially if they come from one of the NACLs or KHEP or ABHES accredited programs. Um, We know a lot of information, especially on MLS and MLT, about those people coming which is the majority of them, 80 some percent, let's say 85% are coming from programs, accredited programs. So we know quite a bit about how they are doing. And it's an important statistic that we release publicly every year that shows accredited programs, how well they do on our exam, how well are the programs preparing the students for the exam. And it's fairly consistent. So I think that the exam committee spends an awful lot of time looking at the statistics of the examinees on the exam themselves, as well as, as we've talked a lot about here, about looking at and developing and working on these exam questions. They look, you guys all look at very many data points on how this exam question has performed. And we talk about If it's a new question, we talk about null distractors. In other words, you have these four choices for it's multiple choice, four choices. And if no one is going for two of your four choices, it's suddenly a 50-50 question whether you're going to get this right or not. So that's important to look at because the question may be performing and it may be easy, but we talk a lot about discrimination. Does the question discriminate? And I talk to the committees a lot about, is it important for this entry-level person 
to know the answer to this question. Is that important? And we'll get to that. I think we'll talk a little bit later about standard setting. Is it important they know this? Will this make them a better practitioner? And that is, it's does it discriminate? Someone that should know this information, be able to answer this question, does that make them a better practitioner? And that's why we talk a lot about, I talk about recall questions. It can be a trivial fact. And whether you know the answer or not, it's a piece of trivia. Does that make you a better practitioner? Probably not. So we tend to look at these questions under a microscope, you want to call it that, with the statistics psychometrician on board that will point out that this question is just not performing right. It's not discriminating. It's taking someone that's of high ability that is going to pass this exam overall, but they can't get to the right answer. That seems strange. If someone that is going to pass the exam and they have high ability can't get to the answer, what is wrong with that question? So these guys spend so much time, the exam committee members spend so much time assessing these questions, each question. So it's not a one and done. It's not you write it, you throw it on the test and you never look at it again. It's constantly being looked at. So I think the uh, next thing we want to talk about is something very special about our exam. And our exam is something called CAT, not the animal, uh, computer adaptive testing is the algorithm we use. Uh, Can you guys maybe speak a little bit about computer adaptive testing? I can start. CAD basically what it does is adapt to the ability of who's taking this exam. So as Pat alluded to, that there is an algorithm that they look at and we start the exam with a medium difficulty question to see if the candidate can answer that. If they can answer that question correctly, then another question, the computer will pick the question and it will be a little more difficult. So it will continue to challenge that candidate to see, are they minimally competent to pass this exam? If they do not answer that question correctly, then the computer is going to give them an easier question. But of course, the more difficult questions you get, the more positive you will become onto the positive side and the path and pass the exam. What the test doesn't do, okay, we don't teach the taker. We're looking at each individual ability of each person who's taking that test. So the test is unique for every candidate. So it's not like, you know, when they, I laugh when I hear my students come out and say, oh my God, there's so many blood bank questions on there. And I said, well, is blood bank a strong area for you or a weak area? It's a weak area. So the computer is really looking at them and making sure that they are minimally competent in that particular discipline. The other thing about the CAD exam is that the test, the questions are not grouped by content area. And so you will get a blood bank question, perhaps, followed by a microbiology question, followed by a hematology question, and so forth. So it's sequential, but it is not it is not grouped according to content area. And so I think that confuses students sometimes too. But the, the number of questions is based on the content outline, the, the basic uh, percentages. So each exam is going to have a certain number percentage, but yeah, it will vary depending on um, the ability level of the test taker. And the, the CAT format is a, is a great format, and it really does drill down from this huge body of knowledge to really focus where your abilities lie. Some of our newer certification exams are not CAT format yet, And part of the reason is it's a new exam. We're working on building up the database of questions. And these are a database of questions that have statistics that we have confidence in that have been tested. And we we know that the answer is right and that it discriminates well. So for some of our newer exams, they oftentimes will start as a fixed format 100 question exam. And over time, as we build up that database, we can convert it to a computer adaptive testing. And there are a number of advantages to the the CAT testing. It really does quickly assess someone's knowledge in the area and very accurately can do that, more so than a standard fixed format. So that's why we eventually want to take all of the exams to the CAT format. There's certainly less time needed 
to uh, complete the exam. These exams are very secure in this format. The, the test taker does have the ability to go back and review the answers and to modify answers, and they can get immediate notification, really, uh, at least a preliminary result on, on how they did. And just to add to that, that the questions, the exam is personalized based on the ability of the candidate. So it's really looking at their ability, not somebody else's ability. It's not standard. They do need to answer all the questions one after another. They cannot leave a question out and move on to the next because the computer is not going to understand where they're at and what type of question to ask them next. But it is, a per, as I said, a personalized question based on the ability of the candidate. It, I mean, I think we call it tailored. I mean, that's that's an easier way to understand that the test is tailored to the individual. Um, the advantage of that is that it is assessing every single question as you have to answer it the first time through, as it's given, you have to answer. It's actually calculating your ability from every question. So we cannot, if, when people say, oh, would you recalculate? Maybe the computer made a mistake on my exam score. We can't recalculate as well as the computer does because every single assessment, every time they answer a question, they the, the computer is calculating their ability. We cannot recalculate. They don't, it doesn't make a mistake. But I do know that people feel like that, well, maybe, you know, I was really, really close. Maybe if I recal if we could recalculate it, I would pass. And that's unfortunately, there is always a line. You have to draw a line and you're either above the line or below the line. And so, you know, no amount of recalculation or rescoring. So we don't, we really don't do that. The only thing we do, if someone asks for us to reassess, we just look to see if there's been any administration errors, if something happened and there was maybe the test stopped or, you know, there was a problem with the administration of the test. Otherwise, you know, we cannot recalculate. So I know people often ask us to do that, and that is not what we do. At the end of a test, before you hit the submit button, are you able to review your answers to all the questions, whether it's a CAT format or not? Yes, you are able to review the answers to your questions. Now, I have to point out that we are one of the we are the only ones that I know of allowing review for computer adaptive testing. It's something that we really need to take a look at because then we have to allow extra time for that. And it's not a lot of times people's first response, first answer to the question is the best answer. They felt that that was the answer and they they should go with that. We we we've done many studies and looked at it people tend to, oddly during review, really don't benefit themselves and sometimes hurt themselves. They actually fail during review. So, you know, we are going to assess that, whether or not that is, because nobody else does it. The nurses have been doing computer adaptive testing. It's the same time we started, they started, we, we piloted at the same time. They do not allow review and nor many others. GRE is um, computer adaptive architecture, I believe the CPA, none of them allow review. So there's something that we need to take a really deep look at for the future. I think there's a lot of statistical data supporting that usually your first choice is usually the correct answer. And then when you go back, you're starting to doubt yourself and question yourself. So usually the first answer, and I always say to students, whatever comes to your mind, first answer is usually correct. If you're going to go back and kind of weigh between two answers, your first one is usually correct. There also is no advantage in taking a CAD exam and trying to intentionally answer. There's no benefit to answering a lot of questions wrong to get easier questions because the test is going to get to a lower limit or a final number of maximum questions. So even though you can change your answers, there are no advantage gained because you're only going to modify the total score. You're not affecting the questions that are, are asked on that. Correct. And, and actually, truly, if you were to just take the test to the best of your ability, people ask me, what percentage do I have to get right? The answer is 51% because it's tailoring. So if you do what Karen was talking about, and that is trying to get 
you know, answer them all wrong so that you're getting easier questions, guess what? You're going to have to answer a whole lot more correct. So instead of 51%, which nobody likes the feeling of when we piloted CAT and people would call me because they didn't know their preliminary pass or fail status immediately. So they would call immediately and say, that was an awful test, hardest test I've ever taken. And I am a straight A student. And I would say, wait, because you're not used to the feeling of getting 51% correct. That's a horrible feeling. That feels like an F. If you're used to high 80%, 90%, and you know what that feels like, you're going to feel terrible after this test. On the opposite side, I'd have people, I don't know why they called me right after their test early on and said, that was really easy. And I thought, mm -mm, you better wait for your results. Because if they felt it was easy, they were not getting hard questions. <laughs> they probably didn't pass. So that's, you know, it is a test taking strategy, but not one I recommend because you were, you could be very close to failing because of that, because you didn't answer enough correctly. And that's a problem. So it's a bad strategy. How do you prepare for success? And the ASCP Board of Certification has given the roadmap for that. The content outline is really the roadmap to success. If you are confident and comfortable with the um, areas on the content outline, the different topics, the specimen types, the disease states, the test methodologies, if you have a good handle of those, it doesn't matter if it's a CAT test or a fixed format. If you, if you have a solid preparation following the content outline, that's a great recipe for success. And that's where we want people to use the tools that the Board of Certification provides to be successful. We don't want people to fail, but we want the right people in healthcare caring for our patients. Thank you, Walter. Walter, that's a really good point, too. And that's really how the exam committee and the Board of Certification really allow for differences in training programs and educational backgrounds by providing that roadmap in the content outline. So regardless of what program you've graduated from or, or attended, when you look at a content outline, you know what you're going to be needing to prepare for to take that certification exam. Actually, you know, this makes a good segue to talking about the practice analysis because the content outline is based on the practice analysis. So one of you want to speak about what is a practice analysis, why we do it, and, you know, what do we get from that? I think the practice analysis pretty much explains practice. What is being practiced in the real world at the, you know, the laboratory level, at the bench, or, you know, how anyone refers to it. And it is a survey, and we do demographics of who takes the survey as far as are they a supervisor? Are they a lab director? Are they a, a medical laboratory scientist? Are they an educator? And then uh, we look at the different tasks of what they should be performing or are they performing in their laboratory? And we also look at it from a perspective of do they perform it? Is the knowledge important or is the knowledge not important? Is it something that's not performed or is it antiquated? And an example I can give you, because my background is hematology and coagulation, is the bleeding time, okay? That has been taken off the exam a gazillion years ago. It is very rarely performed in large institutions. I'm not going to say it's not performed, because maybe in a rural area is the only way they can test the functionality of platelets, but we have much better technology to do that now. So we will look at what kind of technology is in that laboratory. What are people actually doing so that we can make sure that our questions are focused on current uh, tasks? When an individual takes a certification exam and they are successful and pass that exam, we don't want them to be one and done as far as their interaction with ASCP and the Board of Certification. We send out surveys. So the practice analysis goes to people who have, are certified in that discipline. So you may have taken the phlebotomy exam and passed it and you're working as a phlebotomist. You'll get an email at some point from ASCP saying, 
you are a certified phlebotomist. Can you help us by telling us what are the tasks you perform every day in your job? And that's how the practice analysis comes about. We look at people who are in the field during that role. We get all the surveys back. Surveys are so important for ASCP. It's data that we can have to drive decisions. So if a phlebotomist says, we're not doing any spinal fluid collections, that's good. So let's not test them on the collection of a spinal fluid because they're not doing that. But if a percentage of phlebotomists say, you know, we're also being asked to do more point of care weighed testing. So maybe we need to consider some questions on the certification exam in that discipline. So we rely on feedback and surveys from our certificates to help us as we develop content outline in an ever-changing uh, healthcare profession. Well, and not only does the practice analysis reflect current practice, but it really is the best practice for high stakes exams as the Board of Certification offers. And it really provides the evidence for content validation. It's making sure that the exams are fair, that they're valid, they are legally defensible. And so it's a very rigorous process and the exam committees are crucial to developing the surveys or the practice analyses that are sent out. And then they are very involved in looking at all of the data that comes back. And just because the responses may indicate that a task or knowledge skill is is not performed, the committee is still going to look at that task and say, well, maybe is it an up and coming procedure that's not fully integrated yet into laboratories that maybe we need to still consider for the future? Or is it truly outdated and we need to remove it from the exam? So all of the responses on the practice analyses aren't just taken at face value. They are interrogated or evaluated by the exam committees. That's great. And the other thing that I get a lot of questions is like the content outline or the content guideline that we put out is too general. I want I, I don't know enough. We have posted on our website, we have the report, the executive report from the practice analysis. So the practice analysis, and sometimes it's also called job task analysis, that is all listed there. Anything on that report means that you are responsible for that on the exam. So if people want more detailed information and the content outline isn't detailed enough for you because we can't write every single thing that we're going to test on. Take a look at this job task analysis or practice analysis. And the, the practice analysis is conducted about every five years by the Board of Certification. So it's something that's continuously ongoing with the with the BOC. So it's it's really is keeping a pulse on what's being performed in, in um, laboratory medicine. Let's talk a little bit about how we determine what is that pass or fail line, something called standard setting, sometimes it's called benchmarking. So could someone speak on that? Well, we just performed two standard settings for phlebotomy and MLA. So it's very, very current in my, my little mind. What we do is we pick, you know, the questions that we'd like to see on the exam. Uh, and then each of the committee members will look at this exam question and say, will a, how many out of 100% will be able to answer this question correctly? Is it 90%, 80%, 70%? So that we take each of those questions, we look at it individually and kind of say, and I have to say, as an educator, we always say, they should know this. But we have other members on our committee that aren't educators. And that really helps us focus and fine tune these questions as far as will they pass this test or not. So we take each of those questions and we rate them as far as the amount or percentage of candidates that will know the answer to the question. And then we send all that to ASCP and they statistically look at each and one of these questions and they set a pass point. Walter, can you add a little bit more to what we just did? Yes, it's, it really is a challenging task because as Kathy said, we're writing exam questions that we want a minimally competent person to be able to answer. So we think they should answer all of them. 
but that's not the reality because we do want some questions that can be challenging to people. So figuring out if Kathy thinks a question that 90% of the people should get that right, and I think 40% of the people will get that right. You know, we need to talk about why, why do we have this divide between that standard and we work as a group because it's not just one person's standard. It's the seven or eight people on the exam committee looking at the same questions, giving it a rating and comparing them and the statistics, the math behind it. That's why I say writing questions is both an art and a science. There's a whole science behind the board of certification examinations. The difficulty of the question, the standard pass point of the exam, the calibration of discrimination, all that is very science and data driven. And it's it's a collaborative work that we want to, again, create the best exam so that individuals who are certified come into a workplace with quality and knowledge and are ready to assume the role of, of healing patients and working with a team. And I'll just follow up to Walter and Kathy's comments by saying that the standard setting process involving the exam committee members who are considered to be the content experts in the field. And so that's the basis for all of that. And as we talked previously, the construction of the committee is a very deliberate process to get people from diverse backgrounds and geographic locations and different responsibilities within the laboratory. But they're all considered content experts. And it certainly is a very detailed process to set the, the benchmark or the standards for passing, but a very, very important process and an important responsibility of the exam committee. Just one last comment before we go. Basically, I want everyone to know that the, the intention of the exam is to test the ability, okay, of the candidate, not the ability of how they take the exam. Listen to your program director and look at the material that ASCP provides to make you successful. Those are... And then always fill out surveys because we love the feedback and need the information. Great. Well, thank you all so much for participating in our podcast today. This was an incredibly interesting discussion. And it's clear that there are not only many facets to create an, an exam, but also the evaluation process and just everything that's involved in creating these exams for people for their certifications. So thank you all. Don't forget that you can receive CME or CMLE credit for listening to our podcast by looking for Inside the Lab in the ASCP store on our website at www.ascp.org.